Bible reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, entitled, Remember the Lord Your God. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to you, to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig to copper, and you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might and my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You're so welcome. Um, everything you'll need, as I say, for the Bible verses anyway, are on your, on your sheets. And it does help to, to keep them in front of you, uh, because uh, what, what I try and do, and what we try and do here as our teaching at Foundation, is to, to make sure that everything we're saying is, is, is really in accordance with you know, part of God's word, you know, as he gives it to us in, in the Bible. 
so it's a good way for you to stay on track, but it's also a good way for you to check to make sure uh, you know, I, I'm uh, staying on track as well. But uh, you know, we're a community of people that are formed by the Word of God, and uh, we want to listen to that, and uh, we want to allow it to speak to us. We want to allow it to speak to us and form us. Um, so <clears throat> what, what I'm about to share with you over the next few minutes together as we, as we think through this text, um, it, I, I suppose some of the things that have impacted me, I, I, if you've been away, you won't know this, but I, uh, my family had uh, the month of August off and the Sunday after that as well. Um, and again, just a gift for us to be able to get away and spend time with God and, and just recharge and refresh and get a bit of uh, sort of headspace back again. Um, and that's just been, been wonderful. And, and this particular passage here um, has really impacted me. I've been reading through Deuteronomy uh, in general as part of my sort of you know, devotional thing. But I kept on coming back in my mind to Deuteronomy 8. So what I want to do today, if that's okay, is to share with you some insights um, I've had. Uh, some of this will be a bit biographical, sort of almost like an opening of, of, of my thoughts and mine. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like speaking about myself, certainly not preaching, that's not, that's, not, that's not good, but for this one time only, I'm just going to be sharing a few more of my inner thoughts and, and what, I've, what, I've, what a sense uh, the Lord has been, has been doing uh, as I've been mulling over this, this particular passage here. Um, and what we'll see over the next few minutes is uh, the four seasons of church life. Four seasons of church life. <clears throat> uh, we'll see together the wilderness season, We'll see uh, the established season, we'll see a declining season, and then we'll see death, a dead season. Um, let's have a look first of all then at the first season, the wilderness season. Uh, the book of, of Deuteronomy uh, in the Old Testament forms you know, part of the, the series called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they're to be read almost as one book. Uh, some people refer to them as the books of Moses. Um, whether he wrote them or part of them or all of them, um, that's what they're uh, historically called anyway. Um, and, and, and when we get to the, the final of this sort of five-book series, Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is, is very old. He's a very old man indeed. And he has spent his entire sort of, uh, I suppose, twilight years um, leading God's people uh, from slavery in Egypt to the very sort of uh, cusp of the promised land. And so that's, that's, where, that's where we find him today. And, and, and Deuteronomy itself can be considered one long sermon, one long final you know, exhortation and encouragement to this, this massive body of people called the people of Israel. There's hundreds of thousands of them, and, and Moses gathers them together. He reads to them the law that God has given um, you know, uh, many, many years ago, uh, written it down, and he wants that law, God's revealed will, to be ringing in their ears before they cross over the River Jordan and enter the Promised Land. And so the book of Deuteronomy is this, this massive sermon preaching, pushing it deeper into their hearts and minds so that when they get over, they won't forget. And so much of uh, what, what Deuteronomy is all about can be encapsulated and understood in just one chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it gives us uh, four phases of Israel's experience. And I, I think as us too, uh, as God's covenant people in the church, um, we are God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we read that as his people, we have much to learn as well from these four seasons that Israel go through. What can we learn as a, as a church? 
A bit of background, first of all, if you're unfamiliar uh, with, with, with the scenario and what's been going on. God, uh, in, in time past, promised to give his people the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he said to them, in, in various ways, in various generations, he said, starting with Abraham and, and through the family, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant that he made with them, the promise. I'm going to make your name great, he says to them. I'm going to make you a great nation, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. That's the covenant. He said, I'll do that for you. I will love you and care for you if you just worship me and follow me and love me. And uh, so this, the, uh, the accounts go. They began as a family in, 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 in the, the land of Canaan. They went down into Egypt. It started off quite well, but as time went on, they ended up becoming enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians. And yet during that time, they, they grew rapidly to the extent where there were hundreds of thousands of them by the time Moses came on the scene. And through uh, the period of, of, of um, uh, ding-dongs, I suppose, with the powers that be in Egypt, through the Pharaoh and through all the plagues, eventually the Egyptians threw them out. God rescued his people and they left overnight. And God said to them, all right, I want you to go and take possession of this land, the land of promise. They were freed from slavery. But no sooner were they set free and on their way to the promised land, the people rebelled, not just once, but time and again. The people of Israel gave in to fear. More than faith, they started grumbling, they started moaning, they wanted Moses dead, they wanted to go back to Egypt, because in their thinking, Egypt was better than this. And as a result of their rebellion and their lack of faith and their fear, God says, right, this generation, you're going you're gonna to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You're going to wander. The journey itself to the promised land might have taken five days. You're going to spend 40 years here. And so here in the book of Deuteronomy, back to what we're looking at today, Moses is speaking not to the ones who rebelled, but to their sons and daughters, to the new generation, all of them who were born in the wilderness. They are the ones who are about to enter into the promised land. And Moses says here and throughout the whole book, follow God, obey him. Then if you do that, it will go well for you. You will live a good life. You will flourish in the land that he is giving you. That's what we're seeing here. And yet even that time, and this is really where we get to our first sort of season of, of church life, even in that time of wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, that was not without purpose. Look down at verse 2, for example. Um, you shall remember, uh, it says, God, uh, the whole way that the Lord your God, sorry, this is Moses speaking about God, had, the, the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years through the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. That's what was going on in the wilderness. They were being humbled and tested. God, God says, I let you go hungry so that I might feed you with manna, in verse 3. And I did that so that you might know, you might learn that man, mankind, people do not live by bread alone, but by something far more fundamental, far more needful of you, for you. We live by every word that comes from 
the mouth of the Lord, everything God has for us, everything he says to us, everything he is to us, that is far more important. You had to learn to trust God alone, and that took the wilderness. You had to experience that God provides for you when you are hungry. You had to experience his leading through the wilderness, that he nourishes you, that he protects you. That grew your faith. That deepened your trust in him. He was showing you that you need him more than you even need food. In verse 5, it refers to disciplining, just like a father would discipline their children. He was training you. He, he was teaching you. He was, he was drawing faith out of you. Otherwise, you can say you believe it. But until you've been through the wilderness experience, um, you can't experience it. You can't feel it. It's not real. The wilderness uh, experience is necessary. And I think that's where church planting begins, in the wilderness. It certainly has, for me anyway, it certainly felt like wilderness more, than, more often than not. My experience has been uh, that church planting has been a massive test of, of resolve, of courage, faith, perseverance, more faith, more trust. But there have been many times when I have asked God, why? What's happening? Why aren't you moving? You can do this, Lord. We believe you can do this. You're faithful. You're good. Why, why are we still here? Why have we not grown quicker? Why has the vision not come to pass? I've had to learn to deal with disappointment. I've had to manage frustrations. We've seen enthusiasm go up and down. We've experienced misunderstandings among ourselves. Shoulders have drooped. Faith has taken a hit. There has been grumbling and moaning and murmuring from time to time. Much like Israel in their wilderness experience, we have moved from place to place. We've done set up and packed down for almost six years. And we've seen people come and go. We've had a pandemic to deal with. I've even been, as some of you may or may not know, I've been working bivocationally, half in the hospital, half at church to enable me to start and serve the church. It's been hard. And we're asking, what's going on, Lord? Why am I saying all this to you? I mentioned it was a bit biographical. Why am I saying all this to you? Well, I think I, and maybe we, you, have had to learn the man does not live by leading a successful church plant alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This has humbled me more than I thought I needed, but he's done it. I say often to Marion, I, I think out of all the people I know in Foundation Church, I, I feel like I've learned the most. I'm not saying you're not learning, but I feel like I have learned way more than I, I thought I knew most of what I needed to know, I, that, how wrong I was. I think I've learned the most. I think I've had my heart remodeled more than I was willing to experience. I've had to learn to worship God in circumstances that I wish were different. 
when it's all been a bit naff and not very slick and not especially cool, it's humbled me. And God has said, will you only worship me when you have a bunch of specific parameters and preferences in place? Or will you worship me for me alone? I've turned up to prayer meetings when there's been only one other person. And yet some of the sweetest times in the presence of God have come when we've been in the smallest, most unimpressive situations. I've come to appreciate the ordinary means of God's grace to us even more because we've had to lean on them and draw on them and the word of God, the bread and the wine and all that. I've had to learn that God often speaks in the still, small voice, not in the hurricane or the fireworks. See, wilderness, for all of us, strips back the facade. There's no pretending in the wilderness. Um, it shows us, as God intends, it shows us what our hearts are really like and what we really love, what we deeply worship and trust in. And I think the wilderness experience is a necessary process, but it's just not nice at the time. No one likes going through the wilderness. And if you've been with us for a, for a longer period here at Foundation, you, you may experience some of these things to yourself. I know I'm not alone in that. But as we look at this first season, you might ask yourself, well, how do we, how do we move out of this season? How do we get to the next season? The season of establishment how do we do it? What do we have to do? Well, even just a quick reading of, of, of Deuteronomy 8 and, and, and a wider reading of Deuteronomy in general tells us that we don't actually have to do a lot. We don't have to do a lot. In fact, here and all through Deuteronomy, we learn that God does it. Uh, he, he says, and this sort of phrase pops up time and time again, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, when he does it, when he moves you on, that's when you know you've gone from wilderness to establishment. It's him that does it. Time and time again, they are being reminded it's God who pushes them forward. He brought you into the wilderness. He will bring you out of the wilderness when he's ready, when he wants you. So what do we do? We wait on God. Doesn't mean we'd be passive. Doesn't mean we sit around on our hands or just coast along. Doesn't mean we just crush vision. Not at all. We actively wait on God. Yeah, we hunger for him. We enjoy him as things stand. Not with a sort of inner sadness in our hearts that's not the way that we would like it to be, but we enjoy him for who he is in the humble surroundings, in the smallness. We can draw near to God anytime because of what he's done for us. We can cry out to him. We can embrace him. We can use the ordinary means that he has given us. Yes, we have vision. Yes, we are hopeful for the future. Amen to that. But yes, we wait on God. Practically, here are the two headlines, here are the things that we do as we wait on God. Very simple, maybe not simple enough. Practically, when we wait on God, we turn up to church for worship and we turn up for prayer meetings to pray. We ask for God's favour. Let's get those two things right. 
Let's do them well. You know, your presence at worship gatherings and prayer meetings encourages the community of which you are a part. Your absence discourages the community of which you are a part. Worship and pray. Unfortunately, I've had a few conversations over the last six months to maybe even a year with people who have come through the church, maybe people who are sort of aware of us from the outside. And in, in different ways, I've heard a similar question. Your, your people seem to sort of come and go. What, what's that about? And uh, I say, well, some of them work shifts. Um, and I sort of make up excuses for you. Maybe that reveals something of my heart, my pride. I don't want to be known as a church where people just float in and float out, just come and go. Your presence encourages, your absence discourages. Let's worship and pray. It begins there. First season is wilderness. But by the grace of God, we won't stay there because there is a second season awaiting us when we are established. We see that in verses 6 to 10. 1 through 5 is the wilderness. 6 through 10 is when God establishes his people in the place he wants them to be. And this is so good. And this is what we are waiting for. Amen? He says in verse 7, for example, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. There it is again. A land of brooks, of water, of fountains, of springs flowing out of the valleys and hills. If you've just been walking and wandering through the dry, arid land of the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years, the knowledge that you're coming into a place that is just flowing with water out of all the nooks and crannies is just amazing. Thank you, God. Not only that, it's a place where there is wheat and where there is barley, where there are vines being planted and harvested, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, and honey. See, none of these things are possible to achieve when you are wandering around in the wilderness. It won't grow there, and even if you try, the chances are you'll be chased off, and you have to move on. You'll never get to enjoy the fruit of what you've done. But when you're home, says God, when I bring you to the promised land, these things you can have, these things you can achieve. Now you'll be settled, now you'll be established, and now you shall become fruitful. He goes on in verse 9, for example, this promise, you shall eat Bread without scarcity, you will lack nothing. You'll be in a land where the stones are, are filled with iron and out of the hills you can dig copper to your heart's content. All the things that you need for your civilization to develop, to build your culture, to make your art, to develop your technologies, it is there. I put it there. It is waiting for you to come and bring it forth and use it to my glory. It says in verse 10, you will eat and you will have your fill and you will bless the Lord for his goodness. These are the promises of God. This is what happens when, when the church is established, when the people of God are established. The promises of God that we see start to come good. We start to see them being fulfilled in our day, in our experience. It is wonderful. All the hope, all the yearning, all the hungering, all the prayers, all the supplication in the wilderness gives way to this. This, 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 this time, this period of establishment of fruit. I mean, what a, what a massive contrast from all the experiences of the wilderness until now. Then you were hungry, 
now you will be filled. Then you were thirsty, now you will be saturated. Then you were fearful, now you will be safe. Then you were wandering, now you're home. When you're established, you're no longer hanging on, uncertain as to whether we are going to survive, whether this thing has a future. When you're established, you're rooted. There's life. A key word, I think, that comes up um, quite a few times in this chapter. In verse 1, you know, God says, when you, when you arrive, you live and you will multiply. In verse 13, your herds and your flocks will multiply. Your silver and gold will multiply. That's how you know you've become established. This stuff just takes off. Yes, Lord, we're saying. Yes, Lord, this is what we want. Um, I, if it's okay, I just want to maybe just insert a little... Um, a little pause, a little sidebar, I suppose, just so that we know what we're dealing with. When we uh, read promises in the Old Testament, we have to orient ourselves and ask, what exactly are we reading? How do we understand that as people, uh, this side of Jesus, this side of the cross, looking back? How do we understand that? Because on one level, what we're reading here are promises that God has given to the people of Israel, a specific group of people at a specific time and a specific place. And so sometimes it can be tempting for us as, as New Testament believers in Jesus to look at that and say, yes, this applies directly and specifically to us. And the question is, can we do that? Because as I say, on one level, this is for those people back then several thousand years ago. It's, 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 it's been and gone. God is promising pomegranates and olives, and I don't even like pomegranates. Does that mean I'm just going to get completely swamped with pomegranates when this promise comes good? We can get into trouble if we draw a direct line between Israel and ourselves. We can start claiming things that God does not necessarily intend for us to have or not in the way that we read it. But when we come to the Old Testament as, as, as Christians, as New Testament believers, what we do is we try and see everything through the lens of Jesus. You know, through what he has said, through what he has done, uh, through going to the cross. And we, we try and see how, how, how God has 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 given us these promises, fulfilled them in Jesus, but what, what, what remains for us, or rather, what is the effect for us? So, so, so when God promises his people, his covenant people, uh, to enter and fill and multiply and take possession of the land, we're not talking about a little small strip of land in the ancient Near East, in, in Jerusalem, around that area. You can still go to it now. But yet, because now of Jesus and through what he has said and what he has done, that promise to enter and fill and multiply and take possession has become greater and has become wider and has become deeper to us here in the church today. Because to the church, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Not just that, that bit there, as wonderful as that area it is. Go and make disciples of all nations. Or Jesus tells the church, when you pray, when you pray to God, say, your kingdom come and your will be done. We're praying for God's kingdom to be fleshed out and pushed out in our day, in our time. And Jesus says to the church, for example, elsewhere, he sends us out and he says, go and show the world my kingdom. Go and tell them how to get into it through faith in Jesus. And so we're not taking possession of a sm small strip of land just on the east side of the Mediterranean, we are taking possession of the whole world for the glory and renown of Jesus Christ. So do these promises apply to us? 
Yes, they do through Jesus. They are greater and further reaching. Hope that helps. Anyway, here's what the, I think, here's what the established phase looks, how, how it looks for us based on Deuteronomy chapter 8, how it feels for us here, maybe at Foundation Church, Belfast. When we reach the established phase, the established season, we will feel like we've put our roots down and we've started to thrive. You know, we, it talks about multiplication here. We, we will notice increased numbers coming to worship God, coming to pray, coming to join us in other ministry. We will notice increased conversions where people hear the good news and say, what must I do to be saved? When we're established, we will notice an increase in membership, an increase in resources that we can invest in further growth. We, we will sense the favor of God upon us as we meet like never before. We will sense the Holy Spirit blowing among us, blowing us along, coming in power. Faith will be growing. We shall attempt great things for God and expect great things from God, as one of the old guys said. When, when we are established, doors of opportunity will fly open. Opportunities will present themselves to us, and yet we will be in a position to take them because we have the resources and the people and the favor to go ahead in, in Jesus' name. We will see more and more lives turned around. We will taste and see by experience the Lord is good. That's how we will know we have reached the establishment phase. Specifically, there is one marker the New Testament gives us for establishment when a church goes from being a church plant to a Established church. The Apostle Paul considers an established church to be one where elders are installed. That's when you know you've become established, or rather that's one of the signs of establishment. And just for your encouragement and for your knowledge, uh, some of you may know about this, some of you may not, but for the last few months now, I've been running a program uh, called E+. And it's a, it's a training program to, to help identify and empower and test Seven guys to help them learn and discern about whether eldership uh, is upon them, whether eldership is, 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 is granted to them. Uh, it's called E+, because the E stands for eldership, but the plus bit means that not everybody who does the course will necessarily become an elder. Um, the, the plus bit means other areas of ministry or other you know, um, ways of service. Um, it's never going to be a waste of time that they're investing uh, some, some may not become elders at all. Some who are ready for eldership may not all become elders at the same time. There might be a, a staggered thing. But I'm just saying this really for your encouragement, uh, for your prayer, um, just so you know as well that, that, that we're in the process of training elders. And this is one of the signs, one of the marks of an established church. doesn't mean to say you've, you've made it, but um, it just feels significant. It feels very needy and very important for, for us as a church so we can go forward and be healthy and, and thrive. Uh, we've been receiving outside support as well and encouragement through our advanced partnership, um, particularly Grant Van Schelkwick, who some of you have met, has been speaking in. He leads um, a church in, in Plymouth, in Devon, in England. And he's been speaking in alongside our E+, and just uh, providing you know, some encouragement and, uh, and some steering as well. So that's been great. And one of, one of the nice things about being away in, in, in August is, is just hearing a few little snippets and coming back as well, just hearing a sense of momentum and excitement, um, and that's just brilliant to hear. Um, yes, we've got challenges, absolutely. Um, we're looking forward to getting stuck into them, but just this sense of momentum. And so I guess I'm asking myself, I'm asking us, are we near to that established phase? Have we, how, are we coming to the end of our wilderness period? 
Are we, are we soon going to move into this establishment where, where the wheels start turning and, in fact, we can't stop them? They're going so fast. During August, um, as I was reading and thinking and praying, just felt the Lord really encouraged me. Um, I just want to share this with you. It's actually just two words, literally two words. Um, position yourself. Position yourself. I just sense that it was the Lord saying, yeah, get ready. Um, stand, stand strong, stand firm. Uh, just, just get ready. And maybe that's for the church as well. I'm not sure. But um, uh, stand ready, position yourself. Uh, because soon, uh, I think, we'll, we'll, we'll go from wilderness to establishment. Two more seasons. Don't worry, the last two are much shorter than the first two. Um, but still important nonetheless. Uh, decline. Then the third season is decline. We see that in verses 11 through to 18. There is a warning, you see. This is just amazing to me. And we're, we're going to dig into this in a minute. There is a warning in verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and his statutes which I have commanded you today. In other words, take care that your heart doesn't start wandering. You stop loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you're prosperous, when you're established, when you become strong, watch out. It says in verse 14, make sure, you know, watch out your heart isn't lifted up. Or in verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. If you start thinking like that, or if collectively we start thinking like that as a church, we're in trouble. If we start thinking, I've achieved this, it's me and my brilliance and my expertise and my hard work, that has, that has done me well, that has got the fruit, we're in trouble. We really are in trouble. Because we forgot all that God has done, or whether he's saved us, that he's led us out, that he's protected us, that he's fed us, that he's prospered, that he's settled us down, and somehow or other, it is amazing to me, we can forget all that God has done and think it was all on us. I don't know how this is possible. When God has done so much for Israel, they've come so far out of the wilderness experience, and he's done so much good for them, how can they forget? Martin Luther, a famous sort of church leader from the, fifth, uh, from the 16th century, um, is, is famously said, our hearts, and this is a Latin phrase, our hearts are incurvatus in sea, which means our hearts are turned in on themselves. You know, the, the Bible considers our heart not to be this, this, this bumping muscle here that, that, that pumps your blood, but the deepest part of you, the very core of your being. That's what the Bible considers to be your heart. And according to Luther, our hearts are bent in towards themselves. They're bent in on themselves. And so despite the, the remarkable acts of God, despite his signs, his words, his actions... The preaching, we can find a way to take credit for it and we can say it's by my might and by our power. And that happens to people, but it certainly does happen to churches. And when they start thinking like that, they start to decline. There's a, there's a great example in the New Testament, actually, of a church that, that thought exactly like this. In, in Revelation 3, it's a church in Laodicea, <clears throat> modern-day Turkey. And it was a church, uh, well, the city itself was, was very wealthy, very prosperous. In fact, um, historically, they had a, a huge earthquake. Um, 
and uh, suffered great destruction as a city. And yet, because of the resources and the wealth in that city, they were able to rebuild themselves without assistance from Rome, which at the time was the empire in charge. Very clever, very powerful, very wealthy. And yet that pride, that attitude seeped into the church. They thought they were all that. They thought they were prosperous. They thought they were slick, well-resourced, multiple ministries, great kids' programs, huge staff. But look at these words. They're up on the screen, hopefully behind me. Jesus said to, to the church, for you say, church, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But you don't see that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. This is a church in decline. How can this be so? How is it possible that a church with so much resource and so much fruit and so much effectiveness can be on the slide? Well, Jesus says it later on in this message. It's just a tr- I find it one of the most shocking verses in the whole New Testament. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's not referring to the door of your heart. He's referring to the door of the church. And where is Jesus? He's outside. Somehow or other, in the busyness and the success and the the wealth, they have managed to do church without Jesus. He's on the outside. They've shut him out. They don't need him. It's by our might and by the power of our hands we've become a successful church. Their hearts are curved in on themselves. And really they're just full of pride and arrogance that we've got it all together. Stand at the door and knock. Let that never be said of Foundation Church Belfast. They forgot what God has done for them. We must be clear that decline does not always necessarily mean a decline in numbers. That's a terminal event. But what we're seeing here and what we've seen in Laodicea is a decline in humility or trusting in God, a decline in hungering for him, a decline in worshipping him and loving him. All the things that we've learned in the wilderness, we forget those things. Instead, we start trusting in ourselves, our own ability to provide. Here's a principle that appears to be in this text that comes out so loud and clear. Affluence catalyzes apostasy. Affluence catalyzes apostasy. The more rich, the more wealthy, the more successful, the more likely we are to forget God and walk away from him. How do we prevent this? We remind ourselves that we are always on mission. We listen to the words of Jesus who says, make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. You're always on mission until Jesus returns. So as a church, we're always asking ourselves, irrespective of the season that we're in, where next, Lord? You know, we say, thank you, Lord, for establishing us. Thank you for the work of your hands. We thank you for the fruit. We thank you for the people who are having their lives changed and transformed and and becoming powerful because of you. We thank you for the open doors. We thank you for planting us. We thank you for prospering us. Amazing. 
But where next? Who else? Where should we go, Lord? What's our next play? How can we deploy the people that we have? How can we use the resources you've given us to take the next hill? To, 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 to get to the next community? You know, to, to influence the, the other city? We say here at Foundation Church, our vision is to catalyze gospel transformation of our city and nation through resourcing, renewal, and replication. There's a blog post on that if you want more details. But what we're doing is we're always asking ourselves, who can we serve next? What churches can we help to strengthen and get alongside and serve? Who can we send? What areas can we plant churches in? Lord, what, 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 what areas can we establish new communities of Jesus' people? Who should we train to go? Who should we train to stay? Who has apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, shepherding and teaching gifts for us to identify and equip and release? And so whether it's our budget or our ministry choices or our leadership decisions, we filter it all through the, the lens of mission. That's how we arm ourselves against complacency and decline and thinking we've made it. We're always on mission. Final season, unfortunately it's very short, death, 19 to 20. He says in verse 19, if you forget the Lord your God, go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. And this is just amazing to me, that the people of God who have seen such grace and mercy in their lives are capable, particularly in this Old Testament dispensation, they're capable of turning full scale away from God, the source of their life, the lover of their souls. They were created to know and enjoy him, and they will willfully cut themselves off from him. It is utter madness. Why would you do that? And God says in verse 20, you will become the same as the pagan nations. You'll be treated the same as them. You'll perish You've given up your birthright. You've given up your covenant promises. You've made yourself deaf to my voice. You don't want to hear it. It's not like it's, no one wakes up and decides to turn away from God. It's not like, oh, whoopsie, you know, I've just become an, an, uh, you know, I've just, I've just given up my faith. No, it's a journey. You actively walk away from God. See that? In verse uh, eight, uh, nine, 19, if you forget the Lord, you're going after other gods and you're serving them and you're worshipping them. This is an active desire to go away from God towards something else. And that's where the journey ends. There's no coming back. And I think we'll see this increasingly, sadly, as time goes on. A study a few years ago from the University of Ulster showed that roughly 20% of people in Northern Ireland at the most recent census declared that they had no faith. You know, tick the box. No faith. 20, one in five. They estimate, it was the Department of Mathematics, they estimate that it's likely to go up to about 35% in 2041. One in three will say no faith. More and more churches are closing their doors. In fact, we were out walking just the other day um, after we dropped Eliza off at something or other and we walked past the old building. It used to be called Windsor Presbyterian Church on the Lisbon Road. It's no longer called that. It's called the Dance Academy of so-and-so, so-and-so. The place was sold because the congregation dwindled, sold for £600,000. Maybe if we were in our establishment phase, we could have bought it and planted a church there. But uh, six hundred grand is quite expensive. But we'll see this more and more. Churches being emptied. 
because decline and dwindling. Are we immune from this because we're a new and fresh and kind of exciting church plant? Not at all. Every dead church has had its heyday at one point. They were established at one point. They saw a long decline and eventually the fire burned out. So what is our answer here? How do we respond as Foundation Church? And then we're coming to land. But we don't respond with arrogance towards other people. Oh, it's just them. It's just that group. It's that denomination. That's, that's why they're dead. You know, not like us. We don't be like that. That's arrogance. No, we bear this together. We grieve. We grieve that churches are closing, that the, 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 the fires are going out. We pray. We ask God to bring fresh wind, fresh fire to our city. Amen. We say, Lord, do it again. Use us. Keep us on mission. So there you have it, the four seasons of church life. I know that maybe hasn't been a feel-good message, um, but I trust God that it's a needful message and a timely one.